those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Please be seated. We're glad that you are here with us today. If you're visiting with us, you have received a visitor's card. If you'd pass that toward those aisles, have some gentlemen coming up there who will pick those up for you. We'd like to have a record of your attendance. <clears throat> so what your voice sounds like after camp. And we are glad for modern conveniences known as microphones. We certainly had a great week and we had a wonderful time together. We had a lot of uh, running and playing and uh, screaming and yelling and singing. And uh, as much as our voices do not reflect it, uh, we had a great uh, shot in the arm. And we're thankful that you uh, let your children go with us all the way down to the great state of Alabama. And we are thankful that they wanted to go. We're grateful for our eldership allowing that to happen. This morning, let's talk about something that's just another part of life. Let's listen to it from a, uh, a history, life in the past. Here's what Helen Keller said. Death's nothing more than moving from one room into another. What an interesting idea she has as she looks at the idea of physically passing from this life into another, uh, she certainly had her difficulties in life, an inability to hear, inability to speak, and yet pretty well she understands the concept, that the, or the biblical concept of, of death. Benjamin Franklin said most men die at the age of 25, and they wait till they're 75 to be buried. What an interesting idea he has there. We've done all we can do, or we think all we've done all we can do by the time we're 25, and then we just sort of wait out life. He also had another interesting um, quotable quote about uh, death. He would be the one who would phrase, coin the phrase, nothing is certain in this life except for death and taxes. Unfortunately, he is right. It's Samuel Johnson back in the 1700s who said, It matters not how man lives, or dies rather, but only how he lives. Even as Samuel Johnson looks at those gravestones, during his life he would understand that that dash is very important. As you and I look again, we see Woody Allen who said, Not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there at the time it happens. Sure, I can understand that. When William Shakespeare said, all must die, passing from nature into eternity. I tell you what, that guy right there should write some stuff. He is very poetic, isn't he? It's a, it's a good idea that you and I look at death from time to time and, and physical death. I grew up in a preacher's house, which means I was well acquainted with the idea of funerals and things like that, just as much as I would have been acquainted with uh, weddings or Bible class. It was just all kind of the same thing. 
When I was growing up, there was a trend <clears throat> to keep children away from funerals. And the science and the psychology would tell us later in years that that would do them a little more harm than it would good. It would be difficult to explain those things and, and start with that process. But the psychologist would say the, the greater problem was that the children would not know how to complete the grieving process. Here are the facts. Logically, we understand that death is certain. We make this statement several times when we speak about the idea of death, that uh, the death rate here in Arkansas, do you know what that is? It's 100%. We make that statement, and we, and we make it very pithy, and we make it kind of uh, short so that it will be funny, but the fact of the matter is this. Everyone, with, those, with the exception of those being alive with the return of Jesus, will pass through this particular gate known as death. And, and we are well acquainted with death. We meet in buildings like this where we have our friends and our families lie in state where we pass by and pay our last respects to that person, to the family. However, in America, aside from that one as they are laid there to rest in state, and, and aside from that particular I don't really want to call it a ritual, but I do. The idea of death is, is taboo. And most Americans are terrified of death. All right, I'll let you in on it. In my mind, it just ran through this. Most people are scared to death of death. And the fact of the matter is, a few years ago, a poll came out, and uh, obviously a poll can read just any kind of way you want it to. And they were asking what is the most fearful thing uh, to people, and they, they uh, surveyed a whole group of people throughout our country, and the number two answer on that particular poll was death, only to be surpassed by public speaking. And so, as you and I look at death, we, we find ourselves being terrified of that subject at, at points and times. But there are three deaths that are mentioned within God's Word that you and I need to have well in hand so that we understand really what God would have us know and what He would expect from us. Number one, the first death is mentioned is a mandatory death. It's a mandatory death. In James chapter 2 and verse 26, we see how that process happens, that the soul and the body separate, that there is an eternal portion of me and a physical portion of me, and those things separate, causing death. When you and I look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 27, instead of verse number 26, what we read there is, and as it is appointed and a man wants to die, many times we as preachers kind of cut off that first word and we say, you know, it's appointed and a man wants to die. And, and that is the fact, as, it, as it's made mentioned there in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 9 and verse 27. But I think 27 and 28 go together like a hand and a glove. Uh, as we're looking at verse number 27, it is appointed and a man wants to die. When you and I look at the garden, 
the Garden of Eden. We see uh, the first man, the first woman, living in that particular garden that God would call every single portion of that garden good. Everything that he made, everything that he put in that garden was perfect the way he wanted it to, wanted it to be. And then the problem happens where they're tempted and they both fall. She falls from being deceived. He falls from just not being smart. She said, hey, here's some fruit, eat it. He said, okay. You can notice that in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, the last three verses of that particular chapter there will tell you that the woman was deceived, but not the man. And the, the penalty God would give them would be this. He would say, literally, dying, you shall die. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us, does it? We, we don't speak like that. It really, what God would be talking about in that idea would be the fact that they would be dead spiritually as he would walk through and say, where are you? They're, they're dead spiritually. They don't know that yet. And they'd be taken away from that source of immortality, that source of life that they would have in the garden. And so now they're dying physically. So they're dying, they shall die. We find in Genesis chapter 5 the result of... Genesis chapter 3, and Abraham, or Adam rather lived 930 years, and he died. As a matter of fact, throughout Genesis chapter 5, the, the centralized statement that will end just about every verse in that chapter is, and he died. Now, interestingly for us, that centralized statement uh, will still be the same. I, like everyone else here, had four grandparents. And they died. I had eight great-grandparents. And they died. So I guess that would mean I had 16 Great-grandparents. I, I can't do the math that far back. 16, right? 16 great-grandparents, and they died. We can trace that lineage all the way back to the garden. And the fact of the matter is, the promise that God gave, that we would live in a world where we die, came to pass. The wisest man to ever live. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, or really from 11 into 12, would write about the aging process. And in verse 7, he would say, And the mourners go about their mourning, and that man goes to his long home. He'll return to dust. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus would say, There's something that happens. After that physical death, this judgment of mankind. But he doesn't start it by saying, Shh, don't worry about it, you're not going to die. He starts it out by saying this, listen, when you die, this is what happens next. Physical death in this world is mandatory. Now, understand this. That's not mandatory for those who are dead. Not faithful. That's not mandatory for those who are disobedient to God. Notice him there. As he's hanging, 
And he says, it is finished. Don't stop reading right there. What the inspired writer next will write is, and he gave up the ghost. Even Jesus, the very Son of God, died. And so as you and I look at this life, there's no way we're going to escape this mandatory death. However, there are two more deaths that are mentioned of in the Bible that uh, we have, con- you and I, have control over. Now, this is going to be the most important idea in this whole lesson, so I want you to understand it. This voluntary death, this voluntary death is optional. God allows that. He doesn't force our hand into doing that. However, the voluntary death that's found in the Bible is key for man's salvation. What will I die to here? In uh, Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 39, Jesus introduces it where he says, He that will lay down his life for my sake will gain it, for, and whoever will, will hold on to it like it's a, a precious commodity will lose it. But really in Romans chapter 6, it begins to go further. Open your Bible, if you will, and, and let's read for just a moment in Romans Chapter number six. As Jesus introduces it, God by the inspir- or Paul by the inspiration of God continues to flesh out that particular idea. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin? There's your key. That voluntary death. How are we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that as so many of you as were baptized into Jesus? Notice this phrase, we're baptized into his death so that we are buried with him by baptism into death. You know, the interesting idea, even with the uh, Jewish nation and the Roman nation and in in our nation, uh, comes with the idea of burying. You know, you get in a lot of trouble if you bury people who are not dead. And here he says, don't you know that as many of us as have been buried with him, who have died with him, have been buried into his death, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. How in the world is this dead man that he's speaking of going to walk in a newness of life? Brother John has been working in uh, the, the funeral industry for a, for a long time. And I'm just going to guess that you never saw any of those people get up and walk around. What's he talking about? Well, he's, he's expanding the idea that's found in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. You know that song we sing so fast down here in, in Kids for Christ? The idea there is, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This death that's going to be mentioned of in Romans chapter 6 and in Galatians chapter 2 is not a physical death. It's a voluntary death of my will and my desire and my opportunity to follow after self and do what I want to do the way that I want to do it. Now notice this. Verse number five, for we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that we should no longer serve sin. You want to understand this, this voluntary death? You're going to have to understand it the same way Jesus did on that cross. As you and I are crucified with him, Jesus didn't survive that cross. That old man's not supposed to survive when we are buried with Christ in baptism. That old man's supposed to stay in the bottom, and we're supposed to get out and walk as a new creature. Notice verse number 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Dead with Christ. When was Christ dead? Well, three days. To say Jesus Christ is dead for three days does not take anything away from his resurrection. To say that Jesus Christ is dead or was dead for those three days does not take anything away from the authority that he has. As a matter of fact, it, it brings his resurrection into light more. It brings his authority into light more. More And so as we, we as Christians in this voluntary death need to be dead with Christ. Look at verse number 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. So if I'm going to be dead with Christ, then I'm going to have to be dead to sin and alive to God. Why? Because God and sin don't... How country are y'all? Do y'all know the words they don't jihaw? They don't go together. They, they, they don't occupy the same space. God's not going to be in the presence of sin, and sinners are not going to be in the presence of God. If I'm going to be dead to sin, then I'm going to be alive with God. And you flip that coin over, and you understand this. If I'm not dead to sin, I'm going to be dead toward God. Notice verse number 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey your lusts thereof, neither yield yourselves members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse number 13, God is not calling us to be zombies. You're alive after you're dead. No, what God is calling us to be is resurrected from the dead, the same way his son was. We go down in that watery grave of baptism. We're raised to walk in a newness of life. That life should be the proof that we have voluntarily, voluntarily given up following after self and sin. If the voluntary death does not happen, salvation is not 
attainable. Do you hear what I'm saying? I cannot receive salvation from God until I put to death the man who has authority in my life. Because in that salvation, I now become a slave. And I'm no longer the master. And so the voluntary death that you and I read about within the Bible is key to salvation. There's a mandatory death that's physical death that everyone will go through. There's a voluntary death that most people don't want to don't want to even consider. They don't want to give up control. Have you ever met an American? We don't like to give up control. We like, we like to have our things the way we like to have our things, don't we? Am I, am I the only unique one about that? Oh, no. God said, I can offer you so much more if you'll allow me to have control. Now, notice this third one. Here's the worst one. The worst one of the three is eternal death. And I want you to focus in on this first statement. Eternal death is also a voluntary death. See, you and I, while we're on this side of eternity, have the option <clears throat> to follow God or not to follow God. And with that option, we have the choice to be submissive or not. And with that choice, we choose every day. I'm going to follow him or I'm not. And it's that faithful life that finds, its, finds himself in a home in heaven with God. And it is those who won't give up control, who won't give up authority to God, who find themselves in this place known as the second death, Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 8. But it's a voluntary death. You know, as terrifying as, as the physical death seems to most people, this eternal death is much worse. I'm not the smartest man in this room. And in a place that burns with fire, but there's no light, I don't know how to deal with that. A place where no one is, but I'm there. I don't know how to deal with that. A place that has so much pain and agony that I would literally break the teeth out of my mouth. I don't know how to deal with that. We look at our physical death sometimes and we say, boy, I hope I, I die in my sleep or I hope I die this way or that way that where it won't be anything as drastic as uh, being eaten by a lion. That one would scare me the worst. Never to consider the eternal one. Never to consider that, that that process would happen for an eternity. You know, as inconceivable as a voluntary death would seem to us, it just 
just handing over the reins of my life to someone else, just, just allowing them to make all of the decisions. The eternal death is really the loss of everything. The loss of everything, the loss of the ability to make any decisions, the loss of the ability to go or stay, the loss of the ability to at some point try to find some relief. Turn over in your Bible to Jude, verse number 7. I say verse number 7 because there's only one chapter in the book of Jude. But if it will make you feel better, I'll say Jude chapter 1, verse 7. Notice this, even... Now, he's making a, a comparison here to these, these men and women who are members of the church, and yet they are uh, teetering on the idea of perhaps uh, living lives that are not pleasing to God. Jude is writing a letter to exhort them to continue to follow uh, what they should be. That's verse number 3. Verse number 7, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities round about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, set forth an example, suffering. Here he's going to mention the idea of this second death and its um, very decisive nature, suffering the vengeance of, notice these last two words, eternal fire. We, we often, as students of the Bible, look at Sodom and Gomorrah, and perhaps we, we flag that mentally and say, that had to be the, the lowest point in human history, where, where ten people couldn't even be found uh, who would be faithful to God in these cities. Hmm. And yet they were living lives exactly how they chose to live them, weren't they? Look over at Romans chapter 6 and verse number 23. Uh, Brother Carl uh, made mention of this particular verse uh, just a few moments ago. And I think it sums up not only Sodom and Gomorrah, it also sums up uh, the entirety of the world in which we live in, the entirety of our nation in which we live in, our state in which we live, the, the city in which we live, the, the neighborhoods in which we live. And I'm going to go this far, even our houses. Now here's what Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 would say as Paul would write these words by inspiration. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God... His eternal life through Christ Jesus, His Son. And the interesting idea here is that we have the option to choose whether we want the wages or the gift. And that would go from the person who is uh, standing in my shoes versus anyone in the world. I have the option to say, I want the wages that I'm due. How many of you like to do work and not get paid for it? Okay. How many of you want to get paid for that job? Oh, yeah. So what we're looking at is the idea of this is what I'm owed because this is the work I put forth. So the wages of sin is this eternal death. But, God would say here in verse 23, but you don't have to, get, you don't have to receive those wages. There's a better option. There's a gift available. 
by no merit of ours, through the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you can receive salvation from those sins. And you don't have to experience that eternal death. You can experience that mandatory death and that voluntary death and open your eyes in eternal life. You don't have to choose eternal death. Let me encourage you not only to not choose eternal death, but rather to choose eternal life. Just by a show of hands, does, does eternal death seem like a good choice for anybody? Good, that's the right answer. So then the question is, what have you done to secure yourself in eternal life? If you haven't done the things God would say the way God would say it, then today could be your day of salvation. Because in all honesty, tomorrow may be too late. Simply hearing what God has to say is not going to be enough. Neither is simply believing that or just repenting of your sin or just confessing that Jesus is the Christ or just being baptized. None of those things singularly will save man, but that is the plan of God from hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized all of those things building on each other is the plan of God to save man from himself. If you haven't done those things, you need to. However, it might be the case that there are some here who have done those things. And yet, as you look back at your life, you think, you know, if I'm being honest with myself, I've not been as faithful as I could be. If I'm being honest with myself, I should have done this, or I could have done that, or I should have done more, or I ought to be doing more. If you think you ought to be doing more, you should be. If you think you ought to have done this or that better, you probably should have. Do you ever find yourself... In the same predicament at times that I find myself saying, I should have done this or that. And making up in your mind there, I'm going to do better next time only to not complete the task of asking for forgiveness this time. Not making things right with that brother or sister that you might have offended this time. You think, well, next time I'm going to, well, what about this time? It would be Jesus who would say, listen, if you've got aught with your brother, don't make that sacrifice. You go clear that up, and then you come back home. Come home to a God that misses you, a family that loves you. Come home right now while we stand and sing. Kneel at the 